Given our gospel reading, we do need prayer. So let's pray together. God of truth, we want to confess to you that we often treat you as confined to the spaces and times that make us comfortable. We bristle when you say and do things that don't fit our conception of who you are. So we just do our best to explain it away. Lord, would you help us? Help us today to hear your voice in a way that truly acknowledges you as Lord and we as your followers. In the name of your Son, our brother, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, like uh, some of you, I did not grow up in a church that made use of the lectionary. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the lectionary are the readings that are assigned to each Sunday that the church reads and from which the preacher preaches. There are slightly different versions of the lectionary, varying slightly depending on the day, the uh, season, the tradition of that church, etc. The lectionaries we have today are fairly recent developments, uh, but they're based on centuries of similar practices. From the beginning, the church sought to be sure that when God's people came together for worship, that they would hear the scripture read and the gospel proclaimed in its fullness. So, we have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading. And there's overlap and reinforcement of each text with the others. That's the idea of the lectionary. And after three years, years A, B, and C, The idea is that we've heard and proclaimed the whole counsel of God. We want to, anyway. Now, some texts, like the lists of names in Chronicles, you ever read those? Some of those texts don't make it into the lectionary reading, the lectionary cycles on Sunday. It's not that there's not a theological point to them. There is. It's just that the point is made clearer in other texts, and preaching on a list of names, well, you probably don't want me to do that. There are other texts, besides the list of names in Chronicles, that part of me wishes did not make an appearance in the lectionary cycle either, like today's gospel. It is strange and confusing. It would be better not to stir up trouble, and we could just leave this parable out, right? Just tell them to pray, don't lie, Jesus is Savior, don't try to impress anybody, say what you mean, mean what you say, move on, right? Over the years, I have strained and struggled to get a grasp of this parable. So like every preacher, what do you do? You go read a bunch of commentators to find out what the thing means. And you know what I've discovered? They don't know what it means either. At least they don't agree on it. So I feel like I'm in good company. Doesn't it strike you as odd that of everything Jesus said and did, St. Luke thinks this story is worth including in his gospel? St. John tells us that if we included everything Jesus said and did, All the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain them. 
So with all of that possible content at our disposable, we got this story as part of it. The one we have so much trouble trying to figure out what Jesus means. But even that should tell us something, right? That even including it is a message to us. I wonder what that message is. Now, the parable begins innocuously enough. The rich man has a loser of a manager who's squandering his possessions. Incidentally, it's the same word used of the lost son in chapter 15, just prior to this story, this parable. Both of them, the son and the manager, squandered what had been given to them. And the rich man decides to hold this guy accountable. Submit your Excel sheets. You're done. You're sacked. You're out of here. So, worried about his future, the manager does the only thing that seems to make sense. He's already lost trust with the rich man. He has to build trust and relationships somewhere so he's not living on the street when he loses his job. And he very quickly tells the debtors to tear up the bills that indicate how much they owe the rich man and write for themselves lesser ones, lesser amounts. Can you believe this? This guy is classic sleaze. He forgives debts he has no right to forgive because they're not owed to him. And he does it quickly so that the people won't have time, the debtors won't have time to find out that the guy's already been fired and has no power in himself to forgive any debts. This sleazeball is using someone else's treasure to buy relationships and favors and a future for himself. Now, on the surface, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Jesus does have a sense of humor. Sometimes you have to look at it a little closely. This guy gets one over on the man. Have you ever seen the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? See, you all smile. That's what happens to me. Every time I just think of the movie, I start smiling. Steve Martin and Michael Caine, sorry if I'm ruining it for anybody, they spend all their time trying to outswindle one another, and at the end, turns out that the beautiful woman whom they thought was clueless actually swindles them both. And there's something immensely satisfying about that to us, isn't there? Jesus has a sense of humor. The lowlife got one over on the rich, capitalist, privileged entrepreneur. Nice work. But then we read verse 8, where it sounds like Jesus commends this cheeky manager for being so cunning and shrewd. Besides that, Jesus applies the parable and says, use your money to make friends, and by doing that, you'll have eternal rewards. What? I thought the way of Jesus was by grace and faith alone, not by our own works. What in the world is going on? A number of explanations have been offered down through the years. For you philosophers out there, you'll no doubt recall Occam's razor. 
when there are two or more possible explanations for a reality, the simpler one is to be preferred. Maybe that applies here. Perhaps the parable, at its core, is simpler than we would expect. So here's my stab at it. Ready? As is often the case in other parables, such as the lost son in chapter 15, the father or the owner, or in this case the rich man, is represented by God. And the secondary character or characters who are at odds with the father or the owner or the rich man is represented by Israel. The constant refrain that Jesus offers in these parables is that Israel has miserably failed at its mission to be the representatives of God on earth, and instead they have run after idols, especially money. And Jesus said the Pharisees were particularly guilty of that. Did you catch that in verse 14? Israel was called to be the steward of the mysteries and the treasures of God for the world. Their whole hearts were to be devoted to him and then from him for the sake of the world. Give God to the world. Priests for the world. Stand between heaven and earth and offer everyone the abundance of what it means to know the love and joy and grace and hope of God. The forgiveness, his hospitality. Receive from God, give to the world. That was Israel's calling. And instead, they stood between heaven and earth and they turned their gaze away from God and embraced what the world offered, especially money, but they embraced it, and here's the key, and used it for themselves, not for the sake of others. That was the great sin. Not as a gift from God for others, but as a gift from the world for their own pleasure, as an end in itself. This is the squandering. This is the squandering of God's treasures. And now that God, the rich man, calls the manager, Israel, to account, the response in this parable is striking. The manager realizes his failures. He fears the consequences and he gets deadly serious about his life and about the treasures of the rich man. He wheels and deals, hastily distributing the rich man's treasures. And along the way, he gains a community of friends who have been relieved of a massive debt that would have certainly been oppressive to them. A debt perhaps they could not pay. And then Jesus commends the manager for his shrewdness. Not for his deception, mind you. He never says... He was deceitful, now you go and be deceitful. He does not commend him for his deceit. This parable isn't a lesson in financial improprieties and how to do them. And even strictly, strictly speaking, it's not a lesson in financial management for the church. But the shrewd manager has, by means of God's treasures, as it were, 
opened up a new and unexpected future for himself and for others. Opened up a future. I've said it to you before, no doubt you remember, Christianity is forward-looking. We glance at the past, but we gaze into the future. Why? Because that's where God is already. And our time now is the gift of God's Spirit from the future, for the here and now. When we commune around the sacrament on Sundays, it's a gift of God's already glorified life for us that we will fully experience in the future, but we get a taste of it now. The real presence of Christ by His Spirit in that sacrament. When we worship, it's a taste of what's coming. It's eternity here, present with us, in this space, in the name of Christ. When the poor are cared for, and the weak are made strong, and the lost are found, and the young become wise, and the restless find peace, and the anxious and fearful find the love and security of God himself, that's when the future of God's kingdom has arrived in the present. And if I were at any church in anywhere in America, after saying that, I would have gotten an amen. See? Yes, thank you. God is on the move. Taking our stories that are headed towards self-destruction, and he opens up a future that we could never have created ourselves. That is his work. That's what worship, sacrament, life in Christ means. It's an opening up of a future, God's future that's already there, bringing it into our present. And we are called as stewards of God's treasures to be shrewd and wise and creative. Creative as we possibly can to realize that future, God's future for us, come to life. We have a vocation as his manager, his stewards, to participate with God in his will being done on earth just as it is in heaven, right? And Jesus is saying in this parable, why is it that you guys, you disciple types, leave your common sense brains at the door when it comes to my kingdom? Did you hear him say that? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and you're squandering all you have and could have. Jesus is saying. I've been around a lot of churches in my life, so have you, many of you. They are full of absolutely brilliant, spiritually gifted, talented, experienced people faithfully attending them. And for some reason, I am perplexed as to why so many of them just sit there. Those same people will scheme and plan and maneuver to get a greater market share or build a business. And all of that creative energy sits in the pew on Sunday and barely moves. 
What gives? Poor church leadership? Well, yeah, I'll grant you that one for sure. But are we afraid of something? Are we afraid of being creative and entrepreneurial? Are we afraid to take all the resources at God's disposal for us and be relentless about doling out forgiveness, grace, and hope to those around us? Just like the manager did. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I wonder if you've ever seen this, I will give you, speaking to his disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Just think about that for a second. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, never mind all the theological nuances of what that means. The point is, he's given us everything so that we can know the kingdom of God on earth now. Be wise and shrewd and cunning and relentless about wildly distributing the treasures of heaven to the people of the world. And all of that will bring eternal results. I think that's what he means in this parable. And when we put it that way, what could possibly hold us back? Do you feel a surge of confidence now? The shrewd manager certainly did. If I had been in his position, the news of my firing would have been paralyzing, right? Now what do I do? Personally, I've been let go from jobs on two separate occasions. Both times because the employer had mismanaged things and couldn't pay me. Nevertheless, it certainly was a crippling and emptying feeling to drive home wondering what was next. Maybe you felt that. It'd be easy to curl up in the corner and just hope that the phone rings. The manager didn't do that. He jumped into a plan that didn't depend on his great financial skills, but rather depended entirely on the grace and power of the rich man. You notice, his boss could have thrown him in prison with the financial mismanagement. He could have gotten in big trouble. But since he did not, the manager went all in on his boss's resources and his mercy in order to secure a new future. And maybe this is why the rich man admires the manager for his shrewdness. Perhaps this is the kind of manager he was hoping for all along. One who believed in the rich man, who trusted the rich man in everything that he had provided for him and others. And it took getting fired to jolt him out of his sleep and use those treasures in a profitable way. Let's see if we can bring it home a little bit. In town, we've been through it, haven't we? You more than I. I'm a Johnny-come-lately here. Here we are at this new venue after years of splits and micro-splits, as one of our leaders recently put it in my 
hearing. What will we do now with the treasures that the rich man has given to us? Will we throw caution to the wind and go all in on his grace and his power for his people? What is God calling us to do? To risk. What is God calling you to do? To risk. Incredibly, this parable is the good news of Christ for the world. That his stumbling, squandering, short-sighted followers can have a new future, a future based squarely on the power and grace of God. The God who is the ultimate shrewd manager. Here's what Colossians says. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a, do you know the phrase, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that a slave's death on a cross would be the way to save the world? Is there anything more shrewd, more cunning? Has there ever in the history of the world been a greater avenue for joy and hope and love and peace than that? When we lived in Edinburgh, Scotland for about a decade, the church we were part of has a very interesting history. It's a Gothic cathedral, the Scottish Episcopal Church. It was built in the first part of the 19th century For many years in those early days, it was a thriving and very influential congregation. The renowned novelist Sir Walter Scott had his family pew in the building, and it wasn't removed until about 2006 when the church underwent renovations and the pew was donated to the National Museum. You can see it there today. By the 1960s and 70s, however, the congregation at St. Paul's and St. George's had dwindled significantly. The building was in disrepair. The roof leaked, which is not a good thing if if you happen to live in rainy Scotland. There were only about 25 people left on a good day. They didn't have a pastor. They couldn't afford to repair anything. They couldn't even afford to turn the heat on in the sanctuary. So they huddled together around a small heater in a corner room in the building for what amounted to weekly prayer meetings. Every church health measurement tool out there said that they should close and sell the property. It's over. So as they contemplated their options during one prayer meeting, one of the parishioners had a vision. Now, whatever you think about visions, I'm just telling you a story, okay? In her vision, the exterior walls of the church building were gone, and she saw a long line of young people on the sidewalk next to the cathedral waiting to enter the building for worship. After that, she insisted that closing was not an option. 
that God had more for them, somehow, some way. So they moved on it. Against all logic, they took action. They cobbled together some funds, they begged for support from the diocese and from others, and they found this guy down in England who was willing to make the move to Edinburgh for a parish that was barely alive. Who would have thought? Time went by, and the woman who had this vision moved away from the city, but the church began to show some signs of life. One day, she returned to the city by bus to visit some friends, and as it happened, her bus pulled up to the stop right at the entrance to her former church at St. Paul's and St. George's, and she was on the the top uh, level of the bus, and she looked down to her left, and there was a long line of young people on the sidewalk, the footpath, waiting to enter the church for a special service of worship. By Scottish standards, the church today is a megachurch. Five to seven hundred people. Hundreds have gone through the Alpha Course. The Alpha Course is an introduction to Christianity. And many, many, many have come to faith as a result of that ministry. It is no exaggeration, and I know this personally, it is no exaggeration to say that the city Indeed, that small country has been significantly impacted by the willingness of a small group of people to go all in with the treasures that God had given them, to take a risk based on his power and his mercy, and to shrewdly open up a future for themselves and so many others. Wonderfully shrewd and courageous. What does God want from us? I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know everything we need to do. I don't know who he needs to bring. I don't know all the tasks and the strategy. But here we are. His body. The power of God. The treasures of heaven. And he's called us to something. May we in town hear the word of our Lord to us today in this parable of the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.